Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Chatterley, and you've been watching the Russian president and his counterpart from Belarus after their meeting, that press conference there discussing the union state, the progress towards a construction of the union state between them involving deeper integration on things like migration, the economy, military and IT, technology matters. Uh, The backdrop, of course, the joint military exercises known as Allied Resolve of 2022, described by NATO as the biggest deployment of Russian troops in Belarus since the end of the Cold War. Nick Robertson is in Moscow for us. Frederick Prygen is in Minsk. Nick, come in here. The timing once again, another press conference with President Vladimir Putin, with the president of Belarus there, talking about their greater integration in the face of resistance from the rest of the world. Yeah, and the, both presidents there sort of trumpeting the success of it, the economic success of it. Uh, interesting that uh, President Lukashenko was saying there effectively that, uh, you know, Europe, Western nations, the sanctions that they're putting on Russia um, are unfair and the sanctions that are threatened against uh, Belarus also fall into that category. Uh, but indicating, you know, presenting a narrative uh, for their audience that these sanctions are coming anyway because the Western community wants to hold back economic development in, in Russia and Belarus. Um, you can't help but listen to that and see it in the context of the, th- of the sanctions that are threatened on Russia and also Belarus if, if uh, forces cross from Belarus into Ukraine, if Russian forces cross into Ukraine, uh, that there appears to be a sense being created by Lukashenko that, um, you know, these sanctions are coming anyway. So if we cross, uh, he didn't say that, but the implication seems to be if there was an incursion and we were found to be guilty of that, uh, therefore we were going to be getting sanctions anyway. But I think the other perhaps big takeaway from this was, was President Putin's perspective on where things stand with, uh, with the tra- not only the training exercises, but talks, with, um, talks about de-escalating tensions right now. There's been obviously much pressure on President Putin to de-escalate his forces uh, that are going through these training exercises. He says the training exercises are not a threat to anyone. They're on our territory. They're not, they're not aimed at Ukraine per se, that these are uh, not a threat to anyone. But then going on to talk about how the Minsk agreement, uh, this is uh, in essence the agreement to de-escalate tensions and provide a lasting peace in the east of Ukraine um, that was really came perhaps in part at the initiation and support of Russia with those pro-Russian separatists in the east of Ukraine back in 2014. But uh, President Putin saying that uh, that Kiev, uh, Kiev is not doing what it should be doing, that the leadership there should be talking directly to the leadership of the separatists in the east of Ukraine. Uh, 
and he implied that the de-escalation should only come in the context of when the leadership in Kyiv begins talking directly to uh, the uh, the pro-Russian separatist leadership in Donbass in the east of Ukraine. Now, President Putin over the last number of weeks has called for international pressure on the on the leadership in Kyiv to begin these direct discussions. There have been various meetings on this, lengthy meetings. Uh, Putin and his and his diplomats have been frustrated that they haven't been able to sort of um, get the outcome they want in terms of these mince talks, or at least get them going uh, the way they want to get them going. And this seems to be, it appears to be in what President Putin is saying, that there won't be a de-escalation of forces until the authorities in Kyiv begin those direct discussions with the uh, with the rebel leadership, with the uh, with the pro-Russian separatist leadership in the in the east of Ukraine. Um, that appears to be what is saying. Perhaps we'll get more clarification later in this press conference. Yeah, and it comes at a time where we're seeing a ramp up in violence in the east of Ukraine in violation of the, the Minsk peace agreement and the ongoing flood of intelligence that we're hearing from U.S. officials in particular, the latest upon which is that there could be up to now uh, 190,000 troops in and around Ukraine. Nick, they're really seemingly sending a message to Putin that we're watching, we're observing and we're seeing everything that you're doing. This was a statement by the uh, United States ambassador to the OSCE, the Organization for Security, Security and Cooperation in Europe, 57 nations, globe straddling, Russia's uh, a, member, a member of the OSCE. And the figures uh, that were, were being given um, by the ambassador, uh, he noted that were a significant increase in the number 100,000 of Russian uh, forces around Ukraine at the beginning of January. And it appears what he's doing here, as well as sort of taking that 150,000 that we'd heard from President Biden a few days ago, a sort of an update of 150,000 uh, Russian troops around Ukraine in various locations. He appears to be adding in, and this is, again, appears, uh, we need clarification on this, but it appears that he's adding in the figures of about 30,000 uh, pro-Russian separatist forces that are in the east of Ukraine. So, um, you know, sort of presenting a, a very significant figure, but perhaps it doesn't represent that there's some been an additional 30,000 uh, uh, pro-Russian forces, Russian forces that have been added in, that have suddenly arrived at the front lines here. But it is an indication of the numbers of forces that clearly the United States believe are now outside of Ukraine, aligned and ready for what they are concerned about, a possible incursion into Ukraine. And one of the possible access routes, Fred, come in here, and, and part of the broader context here is the fact that Belarus and Ukraine share a what near 700-mile border. You actually spoke to the Belarusian president yesterday and, and challenged him on their prospects and their plans in light of the military exercises that we're seeing. Just talk us through that conversation. You're absolutely right, Julian. It was also quite interesting uh, to see Alexander Lukashenko today in the meetings with Vladimir Putin. Uh, once again, very much placed Belarus uh, in the corner uh, of the Russian Federation and saying that he will stand by Vladimir Putin's side, uh, essentially, not, no matter what happens. One of the interesting things that he said is that with these drills uh, that are going on right now here in Belarus with Russian and Belarusian forces, they're operating uh, together in these uh, joint drills, that uh, it's unclear when these drills end, and they're uh, slated to end on Sunday, uh, whether 
all the Russian forces will then actually leave the territory of Belarus. And once again today, Alexander Lukashenko said it could take a day, it could take a month. The Russian forces will stay there as long as possible and that as long as, as, as needed. Um, and that's something that, of course, is very concerning to the United States. And we were indeed able to observe those drills and speak to Alexander Lukashenko um, during those drills yesterday. Here's what we saw. For the first time, we're getting a close-up view of some of the Russian forces the U.S. says are threatening Ukraine, conducting massive live-fire drills with the Belarusian military inside Belarus. The U.S. says it fears this could be one of the places from which an attack on Ukraine could be launched. And there we have uh, part of that uh, report um, uh, about those drills that happened yesterday. And uh, there, Alexander Lukashenko certainly said that uh, um, he believed that right now the, um, Belarus would support uh, Russia and would continue to support Russia. And essentially that they had formed a unity, uh, as he put it. And that was certainly something that they wanted to continue to forge. Also, of course, one of the things that they discussed today again as well. And so you can clearly see that Alexander Lukashenko, obviously his position is very clear. And at the same time, of course, we always have to point out out, that Belarus in so many ways right now is dependent on Vladimir Putin, is dependent on Russia militarily, but of course economically as well, Julia. Fred, and we apologize to our viewers there because there was a few technical issues with their report there. But what they, what they would have seen was uh, you and he discussing the prospect of an invasion. And he, he pushed <laughs> back quite strongly. Uh, and you said, look, it's not my opinion. I'm just presenting what's being observed yeah. by those in the West and around the world. It was a, a very pointed conversation. You know, it certainly was. And, I, I, and, and one of the interesting things about uh, Alexander Lukashenko is I asked him uh, right off the bat, uh, you know, whether or not um, he was uh, afraid or concerned about the fact that the U.S. is saying that if there was an invasion of Ukraine from Belarusian territory, that uh, Belarus would suffer severe consequences. And he, you know, he said, look, um, uh, do you really believe um, not very nice words. Do you really believe that, they, that we are going to uh, invade uh, this country? I want to look, look again at what exactly he said. For the first time, we're getting a close-up view of some of the Russian forces the U.S. says are threatening Ukraine, conducting massive live-fire drills with the Belarusian military inside Belarus. The U.S. says it fears this could be one of the places from which an attack on Ukraine could be launched. Belarusian strongman and staunch Putin ally Alexander Lukashenko was combative when I confronted him with the allegations. Do you still believe we're going to attack Ukraine from here, or have you already overcome this mental block? It's not about what I believe, it's about what the United States says. The United States there is a, says there's a very real threat of an attack from uh, Russian territory or Belarusian territory towards Ukraine. We have an agreement between Belarus and Russia. We have practically formed here a united Russia-Belarus group, a united army that is, you might say. And this is our official position. Please take it into account as we are taking into account your position. The drills are called Allied Resolve 2022 and officially have the Russian and Belarusian militaries fend off enemies attacking them. It involves tens of thousands of troops, including both countries' air forces and Russia's dangerous Iskander missile system that could easily hit Ukraine's capital, Kiev, about 250 miles or 400 kilometers from here. The big question, where will all these Russian troops go when this exercise ends? 
both Minsk and Moscow say all Russian forces are going to leave Belarus once these massive exercises are finished. But the U.S. and its allies are still skeptical, and they say they'll believe withdrawal is happening once they see it. The Biden administration says there are now more than 150,000 Russian troops near Ukraine's borders and that an attack will probably happen within days. Lukashenko ripping into the U.S.'s assessment. You accused Belarus and Russia that we were to invade Ukraine yesterday. We didn't. So your intelligence and billions of dollars that you're spending on it are useless. At least admit this. Russia says it has no intention of attacking Ukraine, but today also warned if security demands it has made to the U.S. are not met, there will be an answer using, as Moscow puts it, military technical measures. And Julia, just to show once again how close these two leaders are right now, as far as defense is concerned, as far as their militaries are concerned, those drills are concerned, Alexander Lukashenko, of course, we just saw at that press conference, and who is currently in Moscow, uh, he and Vladimir Putin have already announced that they will be together attending large-scale drills tomorrow once again, those involving some uh, strategic weapons, uh, ballistic missiles, obviously from Russia's nuclear-capable aerospace forces. So you can really see that Lukashenko very much part uh, of the of the defense strategy and of the military strategy of Vladimir Putin and certainly trying to show that those two countries are working hand in hand as they say they are countering Western moves. Julia. Fred, thank you so much for that report there and uh, thank you for handling the technical details. Once again, we apologize to our viewers there. Now, CNN has just learned that the leader of the breakaway region of Donetsk in the east of Ukraine is urging civilians to leave and go to Russia. Women, children and the elderly are being urged to evacuate. The separatist leader says Ukrainian forces are, quote, in combat formations and ready for the military seizure of Donbass. Matthew Chance is in Kyiv for us. Matthew, what more have we heard? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, Julie, it's a very um, sort of ominous development, I suppose, because um, the uh, self-styled prime minister of the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, which is that re one of the rebel-controlled regions in the east of Ukraine that has been fighting Ukrainian government forces uh, for the past eight years, has announced that from today there will be a mass evacuation of civilians, the elderly, women and children, uh, from the Donetsk region. Uh, and they're urging people to move to the east towards Russia, uh, where they've been in coordination apparently with uh, Russian authorities and reception camps are, are being uh, apparently uh, prepared. It's ominous because obviously they get the civilians out of the way and that, and that, and that clears the area uh, for much more full-on uh, military action. Now, what the, uh, the rebels say and, and what the Russians have uh, said a couple of times as well is that they believe it's the intention of the Ukrainian military to try and retake uh, that region and bring it back under government control by force. Uh, the Ukrainians deny that. They say, look, they want, they want to regain control of the region by diplomacy only, and they say they're not planning to stage any kind of military attack into that area. But I have to say that that whole kind of exchange of allegations comes at a time when there's a, an actual exchange of artillery taking place as well. Tensions have been really, really high over the course of the past 48 hours. The OSCE, which is the sort of international monitoring mission uh, that's on the ground there, has been reporting a very severe increase in the number of ceasefire violations. The Ukrainian military has said there have been dozens of artillery strikes and, and, and other attacks by weapons 
uh, that are meant to be banned in that region um, from the rebel side to the, the Ukrainian side. And of course, we also saw those images that the Ukrainian uh, military took journalists to see yesterday of the, of the preschool, the kindergarten, um, that was apparently hit by a couple of art artillery shells. Fortunately, none of the children were, were, were injured. Um, and so, yes, there is this extremely high level of tension in that region. And what the Ukrainians are concerned about and what they're saying they're not going to fall into is this, this trap of, you know, being, being drawn into a conflict or, or a confrontation with the rebels uh, that the Russians could then use uh, potentially as a pretext to stage an invasion. That's what their concern is. They say they're not going to do it. But as I said, you know, civilians in Donetsk are being told to evacuate towards Russia. And so uh, on the ground in that rebel uh, region, um, it seems that you know, preparations are being made. Matthew, you raised a very important point here. And Nick, I want to bring you in on this, um, this question and concern that Matthew's raising. And we heard from NATO yesterday warning about the risk of potential false flag operations, a pretext perhaps for, for Russia to react. It's speculation at this stage. We have to be very careful what we say. But could we potentially be looking at something like that in this context here? We, we can be. Uh, there are certainly there are certainly it opens up many opportunities. Um, undoubtedly, if these evacuees uh, from Donetsk uh, are coming out into the Russian Federation, into Russia, uh, they're going to be housed there. It seems very likely that images of that will, will end up on, on state television. And this will reinforce uh, something that President Putin has been trying to communicate over a number of years, but, but obviously amplifying recently, uh, beyond, goes beyond the point that Russia has given over 600,000 Russian passports to, to people and then in that area, really uh, confirming for them a, Ru a Russian citizenship. President Putin himself has personally talked about how it's important to protect Russian citizens wherever they are. Um, but the images of these people coming into Russia uh, will undoubtedly help to strengthen that image uh, that these are Russians, uh, uh, that they need support from Russia. Uh, and this will enable uh, President Putin to perhaps give him more space at home for the possibility of going uh, to war or of greater support for the rebel elements, so the pro-Russian uh, separatists there in the Donbass area. So although this may not sort of fall under the, the, the frame of classic false flag, that is, I do something and I blame it on the other side, it is creating uh, an atmosphere, an atmosphere of concern that these people need protecting, that they are Russian citizens. And as Matthew said, it, it does that other thing. It clears that physical geographic space for broader military operations. And I suppose what it does in addition to that, uh, and I'm sure Matthew would, would concur with this, that when you take out the civilians, you remove the possibility of people putting their cell phones out of the window, maybe, uh, uh, and filming something that could be then used uh, to say, ah, well, this was actually a provocative act by, by the rebels themselves, or, or actually that missile was fired by the rebels. If these events come into question later, what precipitated their 
then a stream of consequences that that became every, the thing that everyone's concerned about, which is, which is a massive escalation in force. So the, 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 there is a potential here, a potential, and we shouldn't go beyond that. But but it does seem to indicate with these increase in ceasefire violations that Matthew's talking about that in this context, this is this is. Um, the situation becoming uh, less safe, more unstable, more volatile, um, and, uh, uh, and therefore more unpredictable. And that's what everyone's concerned about. Matthew, very quickly, final word. Um, I think it adds pressure to the Ukrainian government to, uh, to put in place the, the Minsk II agreements, which would essentially um, give these rebel republics autonomy and uh, bring in the leadership of these rebels into the Ukrainian parliament. Those rebels would, of course, be included uh, or influenced heavily, if not controlled, uh, by Russia. And that's ultimately what, what, what Vladimir Putin wants. He said yes. it again earlier today. We want Minsk applied so that that gives Russia a degree of control over Ukrainian policy. It's something the Ukrainians have resisted, which is why Minsk has never been um, instituted in, in, in the first place. Um, but, you know, this is a, a last push, perhaps, by Moscow to get what it wants and to get that, that Minsk II agreement implemented. A very delicate moment. Nick Robertson, Matthew Chance, thank you once again. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at the stories making headlines around the world. A powerful storm is battering the UK with winds above 140 kilometres an hour. Storm Eunice has blown off roofs, uprooted trees and driven waves over sea walls around the coast. The roof of London's famous landmark, the O2 Arena, has also been damaged, as you can see there. Officials say Eunice could be the country's heaviest storm in decades, CNN's Nina Dos Santos is outside our London bureau and braving the weather there. I can see the winds, Nina. Talk me through how many people in the UK, first and foremost, have been impacted by this weather. Well, so far, we know, Julia, that over 123,000 people across the southwest of England have lost power as a result of this strong storm that uh, has battered that part of the country. It's basically moving from southwest all the way to the northeast and taking in the British capital as we speak this afternoon. Um, all of this has caused the Met Office in the UK to take the uh, pretty unusual step of issuing not just one, but two red warning notices. That means that there could be risk to life and limb from from debris falling from building sites here near the River Thames, for instance, amid these strong winds. But also, they're very concerned about uh, storm surges and flooding as well, particularly in those coastal areas across Wales and the southwest of England too. It's not just the UK, I should point out, that's getting affected. You know, uh, Belgium and the Netherlands are also bracing themselves for the impact of this storm. Um, but as I was saying here in the capital, this is now sort of starting to get impacted by the storm as it starts to pass through here. Here on the River Thames, as you can see behind me, there are no boats. There is no river traffic as a result because boats are not allowed to sail up and down. Earlier today, we saw really dramatic images of the O2 Arena, which is, by the way, just a couple of miles down uh, river here, east from where I am at London Bridge, having its roof shredded. And you could see as the winds tore through that roof, all of the thousands of seats below. This is a huge venue in London, often used for music concerts and so on and so forth. 
Power lines have also been downed. That's affected trains across the country. Uh, and even here in London, British Transport Police are urging people to make sure that they don't travel unless it's absolutely necessary, at least well into the weekend. I should also point out that this is the end of the half-term holidays. So this is a peak travel season, particularly for families who are trying to get back to the UK. Bad news for any of them watching this programme because uh, we know now that Heathrow Airport, Gatwick Airport have cancelled a number of flights. London City, which is not far from here on the banks of the River Thames, has also suspended flights until later on this afternoon. So people have to prepare themselves for a week weekend of bad weather and also travel chaos as Storm Eunice passes through. Julia? Yes, and we've just uh, shown our viewers images of a plane wobbling quite materially as it landed. So, uh, yes, cancelling some flights there, I think, a good idea. Nina, great to have you with us. Go back inside, please, and uh, stay warm. Nina just sent us there in London. OK, let's move on. Eileen Gu has become the first freestyle skier to win three medals in one Olympic Games. The American-born teenager who's competing for China earned gold in the women's halfpipe, adding to her gold in big air and silver in slope style. Hong Kong real estate developers are offering hotel rooms for people to self-isolate as COVID numbers soar. Authorities reported more than 3,500 new cases on Friday. Hong Kong's chief executive has called for new citywide testing. OK, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But still to come, former U.S. Army Commanding General for the Europe and 7th Army will join us to discuss the UK crisis. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The United States is estimating Russia has up to 190,000 military personnel ill and nearly Ukraine. The Secretary of Defense, however, says, quote, there is still time for diplomacy. President Putin met with the leader of Belarus earlier. The two of them will preside over military exercises tomorrow. And inside Ukraine, the military says shelling continues in the east of the nation. Two soldiers have been injured. There's much to discuss. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling is a CNN military analyst. He's also a former U.S. Army commanding general for Europe and 7th Army. So always fantastic to have you on the show. I want to begin with the latest news this morning, which was news into CNN that the leader of the breakaway region of Donetsk is urging civilians to leave and, and go to Russia. I'm going to quote one of the things he said. He described Ukrainian forces as being, quote, in combat formation and ready for the military seizure of Donbass. What do you think when you hear this? The first thing I'd say is, uh, well, first of all, good day, uh, Julia. First thing I'd say in terms of this is this is a Russian-supported military leader within the Donbass. He has been supported as well as the other uh, uh, individuals that are fighting there by Russia for the last eight years. When he says this, it goes right in line with all of the intelligence that the United States is getting, that NATO is receiving, that Secretary Blinken talked about uh, yesterday, and that is they are looking for provocation. They are falsifying provocations and basically lying about what Ukraine is doing in the, in the Donbass region. One of the things that's interesting, having talked to individuals who have been uh, in, in those two fights uh, from the Ukrainian side, they have been very careful over the last several months in terms of limiting their action to ensure they don't provoke any Russian activity. And so I, I find his statements very hard to believe, and it just falls in line with everything else we've talked about. So what you're suggesting is that we have to be very careful with this kind of information and that it could 
perhaps be precisely what NATO was warning about yesterday in terms of potential false flag operations, a pretext. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it is part of the, the overall disinformation campaign, which Russia has proven in so many other uh, places where they've uh, expanded their views uh, that they're used to doing. It's normally the first step in a longer campaign is to provide this kind of misinformation and disinformation propaganda. And what I'd, I've said many times here on CNN is the Russian doctrine uh, their way of war even cites a word, Moskorovka, uh, which I've studied in several of my schools when I was still in the Army. Uh, and it has to do with deception. You deceive in all things, tactical, operational, and strategic. And we're seeing the execution of that kind of campaign by the Russians uh, in, in this setup of Ukraine. You know, it comes at a time where we're seeing an escalation of violence in this part of the country in violation of the, the Minsk peace agreements. It also comes, and you've already hinted at it, where we are seeing what I've described as a flood of intelligence coming from NATO, coming from the United States in particular, almost as if the message is to President Vladimir Putin, we're watching, we're listening, we're, we're anticipating your moves. It's, a, in a sense, a psychological warfare. We know it's, what you're planning. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, and what I'd say is the flood that the citizens of, of Europe and the United States are seeing is the kind of information that as a commander I saw every day in something called a black book. I would literally get a book with, with all the secret and top secret information of things that were going on in different locations. And to those of us who, who deal in, with the intelligence community, that's certainly something that appears every day on our desk that most citizens aren't aware of. But yes, I do believe that there is an active approach to try and share that kind of information in sort of a declassified realm with the rest of the world to really show what Russia has been doing and how they're contributing to these kinds of uh, destabilizing circumstances. Are war crimes taking place in your view? Yeah, we that's, that's a great question. And in fact, I, I've, I thought a lot about that uh, yesterday and this morning uh, with the uh, intense bombings of different locations. What, what I'd say specifically is uh, having followed what's been going on in the Donbass over the last eight years on a daily basis, we have seen activity, and it's been reported the last few days, of between five and six or eight, and in a bad day, 15 attacks by the separatists supported by Russia. Yesterday, it was over 50. Today, so far, it's reported to be over 30. The, the question is on that one, I'll use the example of the artillery round that landed in the kindergarten. Right. Either, either that's really bad artillery practice and they don't know what they're doing when they fire around, or it's purposeful. And it doesn't matter which one of those things is the case. When you start firing on the civilian population, that contributes to a war crime, certainly. Uh, when, you're, when you're trying to harm non-combatants, and this is something that the separatists have been doing for the last several years, it certainly falls in a violation of land warfare. And we have to remember, for, for those living in that region, in the east of Ukraine, and certainly with these self-declared independent regions, um, 14,000 people since the invasion of Crimea in, in 2014 have lost their lives. So for them, conflict is, in a sense, a, a way of life. Based on your experience with everything that you're seeing, you're watching, the headlines that you're seeing, is there a way back? Can diplomacy still work? And is it's everything being done to achieve that? It certainly can. 
and I believe everything is being done to attempt to achieve that. The, the, the NATO uh, countries and the United, to include the United States, are offering continual diplomacy, continued talks. And what we've seen from the Russian side are, are just recommendations that are, are, are ludicrous uh, across the board in terms of their so-called attempts to insert, ensure their security. There has been no violation of Russian security since the beginning of NATO. So why the fact that NATO, that Ukraine would be choosing uh, their future would be a security concern just doesn't make sense. Uh, the, the second thing is there have been threats uh, of economic sanctions in the extreme uh, against not only the Russian people, which uh, partly have failed in the past, but specifically against the oligarchs that support Putin and his banking methods. So, so again, you're, you're talking about uh, the, the potential of diplomacy. We will talk to you with the inclusion of information, as we talked about earlier, which really paints a valid picture and tries to eliminate the disinformation and misinformation campaign by Russia. But there's also the threats. If you do this, we are going to do this to you. So all of those things should preclude any kind of combat actions by the Russian. And, and truthfully, Julia, you know, a few weeks ago, I would have said the chances of, of any kinds of attacks into Ukraine were minimal. But the more I see of what Mr. Putin is attempting to do, I'm not so sure I, I still feel that same way. Yeah, we have to be very careful. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, sir, a privilege to have you on the show once again. Thank you for your wisdom. Always a pleasure, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday, a volatile session so far with the S&P 500 trying to move higher. European stock markets uh, also, as you can see, under a little bit of pressure here. The uh, Zetradax, the big underperformer, down over 1% as Ukraine fears continue to dominate all this after a weak U.S. session Thursday with the Nasdaq falling almost 3%. The Dow had its worst day of the year as investors monitored the latest warnings from U.S. officials, in particular on the possibility of conflict in Eastern Europe. Now, it's an exciting time in the world of aviation. The first all-electric passenger airplane, Alice, is getting ready for its first flight. Aviation, the company that's built it, says Alice will be able to fly for one hour on a 30-minute charge. It's also an interesting time for the leadership of the country, too. Gregory Davis, interim CEO and president of aviation, joins me now. Gregory, fantastic to have you on the show. I can't wait to talk to you about Alice and the first flight, but I do think we have to tackle some of the more recent management changes. As I mentioned, you're the interim CEO. The, the former CEO left what seemed to be quite abruptly, also the exec chairman a month ago, also leaving his role too. What's happening over there? <laughs> Hello, Julian. Well, look, thank you very much for having me here. Um, you know, the short, short news is that it's part of a planned transition in aviation's leadership. We're at the phase where we brought an aircraft from concept to a prototype proof of concept phase. And now we need to gear towards the future where we're going to be building these aircraft and delivering them to our customers. I understand that. I can see that you're in a, a, a very different part phase of, of the life of the company when you're moving into production. But I look at some of the comments that, that the former CEO made, and he, he did mention friction between him and, and the main shareholder. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I look at this on the surface and it does look like perhaps in a high cash burn business, a very powerful shareholder is sort of throwing their weight around a little bit. And that's OK as long as they know what it means in terms of 
engineering, talent acquisition, and what's required for the company going forward. Is this big shareholder, this main shareholder, um, prepared for what's coming? You know, I think you've hit on the key point right away with, with what we need to focus on, which is the talent, uh, the capabilities of our team and our ability to bring this product to market. Um, I said before, uh, managing your stakeholders is key to, to any business relationship. Um, with respect to our capabilities, we have what we need to succeed. So no one looking at this business should be concerned? No, not, not, not in any way. The uh, aviation concept is very strong. Alice is, uh, is as I say, ready to fly. Uh, we're going to be flying in the next few weeks. Um, we continue to advance our test campaign. Uh, and none of our leadership changes are going to affect this or our ability to get to market. And you're the president. Are you going to hang around? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I came here because of what we're doing. It's, uh, this, is, this is the most exciting uh, opportunity uh, I've ever had. And I, I just look forward to getting up and coming to work every single day. And I should mention, actually, I, I've spoken on the phone to your former CEO, and he made the point that he remains on the board, that he's still invested in the company, and he's very positive and confident about the potential of this company um, going forward. So let's talk about it. Biggest challenge, Gregory, in addition to just getting this flight done. Well, I mean, the biggest challenge in making an electric aircraft, of course, is, uh, is, is, is bringing it to market, getting it certified and uh, making sure that we can uh, attain our objectives. Um, the, uh, the current challenge that we face in the, in the next few weeks is doing the envelope expansion as part of our ground test program. Uh, we need to make sure that we are, are safe and ready to fly. And that's exactly what we're working on right now. Is one of the biggest impediments for this to become the norm for air travel the battery. We often have this conversation on the show in terms of battery weight, never mind expense. But when we're thinking about aircraft, I just I imagine that you simply have to find a way to make batteries more efficient and make them lighter in order to make this ultimately that the future of, of aviation, electric aviation. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the battery technology is evolving. Uh, the good news is that current technology will allow us to fly, and we're going to see that uh, imminently with, with our current aircraft. Um, with today's technology, with some clever engineering, you can actually make a product that's uh, economic and able to service the market, and that's what we're working on today. Um, I have young children, and we were just, just discussing, I'm looking forward to 10 or 15 years from now when going flying isn't going, it's not about going flying on an electric plane, that's the new norm. Uh, you don't have to use the preface, uh, it's an electric airplane, it will simply be flying on an airplane. And with some of the other technology that's being developed uh, over and above what we have access to today, that's becoming more and more likely. What about the regulatory framework and, and clear guidelines from the FAA? I know this is also part of the ongoing process that you're, that you're dealing with, but this clearly is going to be a, a huge stepping stone as well. Timing on that. Absolutely. Yeah. A absolutely. Yeah. So FAA and uh, other world regulations like EASA, Transport Canada and, and other civil standards are, are key. Um, there's been a lot of work in terms of developing the new uh, regulatory standards for electric aviation. And I'm pleased to say that we've been part of that since the beginning. Um, aviation has been in the game since 2015 uh, and has been very early in interacting with the regulators to determine what is going to be the standard of safety uh, for electric flight. Uh, for Alice in particular, and the approach that we're taking at Aviation, um, most of the airplane is just an airplane. Uh, a lot of it's a very sophisticated airplane, but we don't have to reinvent all of it to make this aircraft successfully. We can 
on the key technologies that we're developing. Okay, and talk to me about the flight specifically then. What can we expect? How many people can this aircraft carry? Give me the specifics. The specifics. Pilots, it will be able to operate. Gregory, I'm going to have to stop you there because I've lost you. I get you to the most exciting part and then the reception goes, but you're going to have to come back and talk to us when this actually happens. And I think I'm talking to myself now. I am. Gregory Davis there, the interim CEO of Aviation, who will be back to discuss the real details on that flight. Live TV. Now, electric planes to electric cars. Tesla facing a new US government investigation, this time after complaints about phantom braking. The details next. Welcome back to First Move. Getting goods across international borders is often fraught with challenges. Delays at points of entry can be expensive. Web Fontaine believes its use of technology, including artificial intelligence, can help many nations across Africa. And Connecting Africa caught up with its CEO. Africa is a huge continent. And with its large population, it has an immense trade potential. This is a new one, which is missing Egypt. So I'll just move it like this. So we have a project in all these different countries. We are present in Ethiopia, Egypt and Africa, Central African Republic. We are working on all the spectrum, basically, of trade, starting from pre-import procedures to operations within the ports, movement of goods in the port, uh, customs clearance and as well transit of goods uh, throughout the country. I think that uh, today we have more than more than 150,000 people connected to our to our platform. We've seen between 2018 and, and 2021 an increase of more than 40 percent of customs revenue. And you know that customs revenue is quite important in our countries huh? because it's a large part of the budget of the government. So this is something that we, we are quite proud of. Connectivity is one of the challenges that we face. Uh, the fact that we have to very often connect various offices, locations, customs offices, ministries, banks, private sector to the overall system. This connectivity is an issue. So it's getting better in Africa. Solutions are being found, but we still in some countries have to implement a total telecommunication system so that we can, people can work properly. Technology will be able to bring a lot of changes and simplify things, bring confidence between countries to be assured that goods produced in the countries finally arrive at final destination. We have solutions like the uh, certificate of origin. So certificate of origin is something basically goods produced in Africa should be labeled made in Africa. So you need to use technology to be able to assure that these goods are effectively produced in Africa and going to another country so they don't pay taxes and, and exemptions. So these are solutions that technology can bring a lot, lot of new things so that trade flows in a smooth way. And on to a phantom braking probe. U.S. safety regulators are investigating complaints of sudden and unexpected braking while using the autopilot function on certain Teslas. Pete Muntean joins us with all the details. Pete, to be specific, I think it's 354 complaints and it's Model 3s and Ys that are in focus here. Any sense of whether this has caused accidents? What more do we know? 
no injuries or deaths Few. yet, but you got to read the complaints, and I'll get to that in a second. You know, this is the latest government investigation into reported issues with Tesla's Julia. First, there was concern about cars full self-drive driving into emergency scenes along the side of the road. And now the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration is starting this probe into why Tesla Model 3s and Model Ys are doing what drivers call phantom braking. NHTSA says this is happening while features of the adaptive cruise control, or the advanced driver assistance system, is engaged. Drivers report that system is applying brakes while their Tesla's driving at highway speeds, in some cases repeatedly and randomly over long trips. NHTSA says this could impact some 416,000 Teslas. Now, the agency's received about 350 reports of this issue from drivers. It's important to note here, no deaths, no injuries, But read some of these reports. This one from a driver who says, I was driving in cruise control at the posted speed limit of 80 miles an hour. The conditions were dry and sunny. And without warning, the car braked hard and decelerated from 80 miles an hour to 69 miles an hour in less than a second. The braking was so violent, this driver says, my head snapped forward and I almost lost control of the car. Another driver says in a different complaint to the federal government, since purchasing the car less than a month ago, there have been over a hundred phantom braking events while using cruise control. It is incredibly dangerous. One more complaint here. Quote, I have contacted Tesla service and they're stating that the car functions normally and that this is normal behavior. If this is normal behavior, the driver says, it is definitely unsafe. I have almost been rear-ended several times. Now, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says it's committed to holding manufacturers accountable and ensuring they meet requirements to initiate a recall. In this case, not a recall just yet. Maybe a bit of good news, though, since Teslas are pretty advanced, Julia, any update could be sent over the air to fix this problem. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. What's Tesla saying and can they do this remotely with a, the with a software update? And that seems to be the case. Um, wow. Wow. But yeah. frightening, I think, if you're in that in that situation. I suppose it's a good test yeah, of the very brakes, scary. Though, and they clearly I mean, can work. Can you imagine? I mean, we've seen and we've seen some of the videos of this too, and some of the videos are pretty benign. Although, you know, these Tesla drivers have reported over and over again this problem, and a lot of it has to do with the sensors that have been changed out on these cars. I- initially, these adaptive cruise control systems used essentially what amounts to radar. Now they're using cameras on Teslas, and some say that's just not safe enough, that it just can't decipher things that would be in the road, which is maybe the reason why these brakes are being applied in such Mm. jerky and really scary ways. Yeah, I tell my car off when it puts my brakes on when I'm trying to parallel park. I'm like, there's plenty of room, but um, yeah, this is a little bit serious. I'm a good parker. Pete, great to have you with us. Thank you. Keep my team there. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you on Monday. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.